Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, joining me from his home in Virginia, is my brother, David Osler. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks. It's good to be here, Richard. Or I call you Dick, because that's what your family members call you. You can call me that. It's true, listeners. I have been known by the name of Dick for most of my life. And lots of people still call me that, and both names are fine, as well as Papa Osler. In fact, for a marketing guy, I haven't done a good job of being consistent on my first name, so a lot of people are confused what to call me. But all of those work. Uh, David has been um, on the podcast two of prior times, episode 17 and episode 167. And we're going to talk about his book. We talked about it in episode 167. It's called Bridges. Ministering to Those Who Question. It was published by Coford Books. It's available at Desert Book. And I sometimes look at an Amazon um, bookmark I have that has the top 100 LDS books as far as Amazon sells. And your book is often in the top 50 or 100. And I just recognize your book is kind of timeless. And David's going to talk about a new chapter in his book. His, chap- his book has 10 chapters. He's written an 11th chapter. And in the show notes, um, you can download the 11th chapter for free. And we're going to talk about that chapter. So is that okay for an introduction? That's fine. Um, Tell us a little bit, if someone hasn't heard of the book Bridges, tell us a little bit about when it was published and just um, about the book before we get into chapter 11. Yeah, the book was published in July of 2019. Um, I wrote the book because I think sometimes we misunderstand people who have questions or who have stepped away from the church and um, understanding um, what, why they might step away, what their issues are, helps us as uh, believing members of the church to be able to um, minister to them, which means to um, respond to their needs to be able to understand what their concerns are, um, not necessarily to, to have them come back because many of them won't, but to um, be able to sit shoulder to shoulder, um, hugging, um, listening, crying, whatever that means to be compassionate and ministering to them. Um, what's the backstory to have written this book in the first place? Rochelle, who's my wife, and I had a calling in our stake. We were asked to um, reach out to the less active, the non-attenders, I think is a better word, um, in our stake that were single. We have about 700 of them in our stake in Northern Virginia. These are people who are not going to um, singles wards or their records are not there. So they're um, people that are... um, you know, often not known. So we decided what we would do is um, we would send them uh, surveys. We would uh, try and meet with them in focus group settings. We would have them uh, send us texts. And the whole issue was to try and listen and understand why um, they're choosing not to attend church. Um, As we did that, we came to an understanding that most of our local leaders um, churchwide really don't understand some of the issues why people step away. 
And because of that, we produced some training materials in our stake, went to each ward council, for example, and did some firesides where we talked about why people step away, you know, what are the issues, how can we respond? Um, and um, from that, I felt like a book could be published that would um, help um, interested readers to be able to understand those kinds of issues. And the book is terrific. Um, I've read the book Planted before your book came out with from Patrick Mason, and um, this book seems in the same genre, if that's a word. Uh, is there any distinction you'd, you'd um, for listeners that are wondering the difference between Planted and the difference between Bridges? Yeah, I, I like Planted a lot. And I, I've talked with Patrick Mason about the book, and I talked with him before I wrote my book. And we both agreed that they really have kind of a different focus. Um, his book is more towards um, people that have questions to try and kind of find space for um, answers that allow people to stay in the church. And my book's really more towards uh, leaders, believing members to help understand why people step away from the church. So they, they really kind of approach um, the issues uh, from a different perspective and have primarily a different audience. Talk about your professional background and just what sort of this fits with what you've done professionally. That's a leading question, <laughs> um, but I think I know there's a link there, but it might be interesting for our listeners. I worked um, uh, in the healthcare industry and in my area, I'm not a physician, I'm a business person. My area was evidence-based medicine, which was uh, services and data sets and software that would take evidence and use it inside um, healthcare. Um, and in that career, I always learned to ask the question, what does the data say? So that when you're approaching a question, uh, how much fraud is there in the system, which physicians treat what disease effectively, what uh, treatment protocol is best, you first go to the data. And you say, do I have sufficient data to be able to answer the question? And if I don't, where can I get that data so that that question can be answered with um, more than simply opinion or knee-jerk or um, anecdote? And, um, you know, in our professions, it kind of wires our brains in particular ways. And so my brain's kind of wired that way. And so when we were in our assignment in our stake, um, the first question I asked was, what data tells us, what, what data do, can I find that will tell us why people step away from the church? And um, so I, I researched that. I, I found data sets that are good there. And then I augmented it with data that um, allowed me uh, to go places that that uh, other data did not. Talk about. Um... Were you surprised? Because here's, I, I don't know if it's quite this black and white, because I know you'd had experience with people that had stepped away, but I had in my own life formed opinions about this group of people without really talking to this group of people. And I heard other people talk about people that step away in Hawaii. And, and I, I was surprised as I read your research and some of the stuff, other stuff just to hear directly from people. Were you surprised as the data came in 
um, your own assumptions and your own conclusions versus what the data said. Well, I, I should back up because um, you and I had a conversation about this about it's probably five years ago. And um, as I and Rochelle had this calling, I, I, I came to you and I said, so I've got 700 people. What do I do? And you said, go ask them, you know, ask them why. Um, and um, because you've done that uh, yourself when you were a single sword bishop and you went and asked people and, um, you know, you were kind of asked open questions so that they could really kind of tell their stories and the like. And so um, I, I kind of took that plus my own desire for data and uh, did, in did in fact find some interesting um, uh, learnings for me. Um, many uh, people in the church have, it's almost a trope uh, of uh, reasons why people leave the church. Um, it's um, sin. You know, they must be doing something wrong. There must be some sort of secret sin that's going on in their lives that causes them to lose the spirit or, um, you know, that they simply want to live an alternative lifestyle and so they leave the church. They're, um, they might be lazy and don't read their scriptures or attend the temple or, or diligent in their ministering assignments um, or other aspects of religious devotion that causes them to lose the spirit. Um, or they've been offended in some way. Um, and, you know, some of our church history lessons, we talk about Thomas Marsh and spilled cream and Simon Ryder and misspelled uh, names and things like that. And sometimes we take those lessons and apply them to today. Um, and as I've talked with people who have left the church, um, and I've talked with hundreds at this point, of people um, that have left the church, I find that those aren't the major issues that cause people to feel like they can no longer participate at church. So um, that was a, a learning for me. And so I thought I would test that. And um, I did a survey of about 500 local leaders um, that um, uh, these were ward council leaders, either past or current. And I asked them um, what they thought the reasons were for people um, having a faith crisis and leaving the church. And about half of them um, identified offense or sin or laziness or not wanting to keep the commandments as the primary reasons why people would have a faith crisis. So um, that, that was a real learning for me that, that there, was a, there were reasons why people were struggling to stay. And their local leaders, and even me, um, as as just a believing member, um, didn't understand those reasons. And it, it's like speaking two different languages, right? There's no conversation. There's no understanding. There's no ability to be able to respond when someone is speaking a set of reasons that the other person just can't understand. Um, why is it important for local leaders and parents to know? Um the reasons? Well, um, I, I think that, um, I, I think that, uh, there's probably a couple of reasons. One is, um, I think we can, um, in the church do what I call unforced errors. 
that make it harder for people to stay. Um, it doesn't push people out. People have their own agency whether to stay participating or not. Um, but we can make it harder for them to participate. The things we say, the way we say it, the tone and the culture that we create are all contributors to whether someone um, wants to stay or not. Um, the second is that the more that we understand when we are in um, moments of seeking counsel, let's say that we're in a ward council, um, if we are asking questions based on understanding, our likelihood of receiving insight or revelation about how to respond and create programs or culture or callings or whatever tools we have inside our councils, um, we're more um, able to receive revelation when we can ask questions that are precise to the real concerns that people are facing. So I, I think it's both. Um, one is avoiding problems and the other is, is overtly trying to create solutions. Um, there aren't solutions to everything. And there's no revelation that I know of that is going to um, change things in such a way that everyone would want to stay. Um, but there's things that we can do and need to be doing in our families or in our ward or, you know, wherever we are that um, uh, allows us to connect uh, closer spiritually to, um, you know, people who um, think and believe differently than we do. What about parents? I've thought about parents listening that have young kids um, and that would want to have better tools to help their children stay. Um, is it helpful for parents? I mean, I think this is sort of an obvious question. In my mind, if I know the, the analytical reasons why people step away, then I can sort of um, be aware of those as I'm teaching my children in age-appropriate ways. And some people use the word inoculating, so they don't get surprised later on. They understand some of the complicated issues. I develop tools as a parent to manage their questions and create safe places they can open up to me and just have more tools to, because I think part of your research and part of the thing I've done a little bit is just most people um, do want to find a way to stay. Uh, maybe that's not true of everybody in your sample, but a lot of people that are are just wanting an authentic way to stay and don't often know how to do that. That's kind of a couple of questions and a thought in there. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And I, I, I think it's really kind of neat to be able to think about um, how one um, raises children in today's day. Um, in a way that avoids some of the challenges of faith. So um, one thing that I think the church has done really well over the last few years, um, and I saw it at the beginning, I saw the beginning parts as I was writing the book, is that there are, they are publishing a more accurate um, history of the church. Um, when I grew up, um, church history was taught in entirely glowing and only positive ways. And um, with the publication of the gospel topic essays, as well as the early volumes of saints, um, we learned that the people of the early part of the restoration are just like people today. They're 
complex. They um, include um, aspects of culture as well as um, as in inspiration. Um, they are kind of creatures of their time with all the mistakes that that implies. And um, it allows us to be able to separate, um, uh, to be able to look at someone and say, this person did great things, but also still say, but this person made mistakes. Um, and um, to not have that um, kind of blow up our, uh, all the good things that that person did and, and tear that down, but allow us to be able to recognize um, uh, that there are limitations of people, um, um, that there were um, challenging aspects of the early church, the church that's not so early in today's church, um, and to be able to, to help um, our children grow up with a less uh, kind of brittle view of um, the uh, obvious um, humanness of the people that um, lead wards and, and the church as a whole. So I, I think that's an important thing. Um, I think the second thing that we can do is we can create a culture that allows um, people to feel like they belong, even if there are some aspects of difference. Um, uh, I'm a white man that has had leadership callings. Um, I uh, probably more than any other kind of uh, type person because of my economics, my race, my gender, my leadership history, feel like I belong at church. Um, but there's a lot of people that don't um, have that. They, they might um, have low income in a high income ward and may feel inadequate. They may never have had leadership experience. They may be a woman um, seeing um, how decisions are so often uh, dominated by men. Uh, they may be um, uh, a, a person of color um, that um, is aware that uh, there's been times um, where they have been deprived of the blessings, the full blessings of, of eternity and ordinances. Um, or, or they may feel still marginalized because of sexual orientation or gender identity. And so I, I think we have an opportunity to be able to teach our children um, what their role is in terms of creating belonging and um, model for them our acceptance of them, even if there are aspects of them that they feel marginalizes themselves, either in the family or in, in the church. I love that. You said a phrase, I sometimes a guest will say a phrase that just sticks out at me for me. And you said brittle view. Um, and I think what you're saying there is if you have a testimony based on this perfected glowing narrative, that that is sort of a brittle foundation that's probably not sustainable. And it creates, once you realize that it's not the way you, you thought it once was, it can break and a shelf can break in a faith crisis. While another way is to just, I've always felt the uniqueness of a restored doctrine can stand on its own for a testimony and we can hold that and all the things that came with that including the book of mormon and covenants and understanding about heavenly parents and the savior and talk about the realities of the restoration and that is 
for me anyway, and for many, a more sustainable approach and um, allow for the, inf- I get this word backwards sometimes, listeners, fallibility, infallibility, fallibility of our, our leaders. And, um, and so our shelves don't break and our brittle view, I'm thinking of something like toffee that's very brittle on the first bite I take and it, the whole thing shatters. And so that's good visual imagery for me. I love what you're teaching parents. I remember when our youngest son came home from seminary and talked about the seminary teacher teaching him about you know, um, polygamy, Joseph Smith's polygamy, and just teaching that. And he, he was anxious to learn that. It's not like our youth don't want to learn this stuff. They're hearing bits and pieces. And the way they learn these days, they generally don't go to mom and dad when they hear something. They go to a Google search engine and type in Joseph Smith's polygamy. Um, or Blacks and Latter-day Saints. And so I think that's that's the way they're looking for information these days, but to proactively teach that in our homes and in the walls of our church, to me, seems like a better way to do that. So they're first being exposed by from these issues by parents. Thoughts on that? I, I know a number of stories where um, missionaries were unaware of Joseph Smith's polygamy until they were teaching an investigator. And the investigator says, well, Joseph Smith was a polygamist. And the missionary says, no, no, Joseph Smith wasn't a polygamist. And you know, the, the investigator Googles it and puts it up in front of the missionary and the missionary has a faith crisis and needs to talk to the mission person about it. And, and you know, that's kind of the wrong time and the wrong setting to be able to learn about these things. Um, and it's also wrong to teach investigators this, right? Good point. <laughs> Doesn't help them. You know, if they join the church and then they find out that the missionary didn't even know about that. Um, so, yeah, you use the word inoculation and, you know, it's a, it's kind of an interesting word. It's a, an easy word to use and we get it. And particularly in this day of COVID, I, um, I, I just, I, the, the, the one hesitation I have with the word is Good. that it implies that there's a disease. Good point. And, you know, questioning isn't a disease. Questioning is a part of growth. And, um, and so we need to just be teaching. Um, and we need to be able to understand what the needs of the rising generation are, or our older generations, even people with gray hair like us. And um, we need to be able to teach uh, people according to their needs. That's what ministering is. Ministering isn't kind of hurting people to the temple or on the covenant path. Ministering is understanding people's needs and attending to them. And um, the more that we understand what those needs are, uh, the more we can understand how to attend to them. So that's why we should be teaching children these kinds of things. Um, That's why we should be modeling these kinds of uh, behaviors that create um, belonging um, and connection and inclusion as opposed to um, the alternative. So um, I, I think that's a great question. And, um, um, uh, you know, maybe one day I'll write another chapter about, Good. <laughs> about that because I think that's a, a great area. Talk about um, when you finished the book, there was 10 chapters into it. Give us the backstory of why you felt impressed to do an 11th chapter, and then tell us about the 11th chapter. So um, I, um, 
I, I was on a podcast. It's uh, a podcast for mixed faith couples. Uh, it's called Marriage on a Tightrope. Uh, some of your listeners may know it. And um, this is um, where um, a husband or a wife has a faith crisis. Um, maybe they were married in the temple. Maybe both or one was a returned missionary. And uh, now um, one says, I, I, I can't believe anymore. I can't participate anymore. And so they struggle with how to do that. And this podcast focuses in, you know, for couples along those lines. And um, the hosts on that, Katie and Alan Mount, um, after I did my podcast, said, why didn't you include um, material on mixed faith marriages? And, you know, I, I kind of looked at them and I said, because uh, I'm really not as smart as you might think I am, because I just <laughs> didn't think to do it. Um, it wasn't something that kind of hit me on the head as I was writing this. And partly it's because I don't have a mixed faith marriage. Um, and, you know, close people to me don't have mixed faith marriages. So I hadn't seen it as a problem. And, um, and so I, I, I told them that at some point I would revisit it. So um, the fall of 2021, I had some time. And so I, I reached out to Alan and Katie again and says, I I'm going to do this. And so I'm going to write it. And so I, I finished the manuscript in, in, um, in January of 2022, and it's gone to the publisher. And now it's um, available to download um, uh, from my website that you'll put in uh, the show notes. Um, and it will also be included in future printings of, of Bridges. Um, and it really has two sections to it. Uh, one is about mixed faith marriages, and the other is about mixed faith families. Um, I find that um, as challenging as it is for um, leaders in their wards to deal with people who have a faith crisis and leave, it is even more painful and challenging to deal with this when it's in our family. So um, if you have adult children or even teens that, um, um, you know, leave the church, um, there's, there's just a lot of pain that parents feel on this. Um, and if it happens in your marriage, it even can be threatening to um, the stability or even the continuance of the marriage. And so that's really the purpose of that chapter. And it was just, um, you know, I, I just didn't know when I wrote this book how important it was to be able to, to, to take these concepts into families. I'm a huge need for this. And even though I'm sort of the LGBTQ guy with the focus of my podcast, I'm amazed how many people reach out on this topic. It's not even LGBTQ related. It's just there's a real need for content in this space. Frame up how, be the voice of the spouse that's not going through the faith crisis and be the voice of the spouse that's going through the faith crisis, kind of take us into each of their, their feelings and their heart. And just to, so everybody can kind of feel what they're feeling. And then if you can remember, talk about then principles to bridge that gap as you set it up. Yeah. So. You know, this is personal to me because I'm married and, um, you know, my wife and I just celebrated uh, 42 years of marriage. Um, we, we married in the Salt Lake Temple. Um, you know, I was barely home from my mission for about a year and a half. 
Um, we looked at each other across the altar. We promised fidelity, love, commitment. We had a, a vision of an eternal family. We hoped that, you know, one day we would have children joining us in the temple and we would witness their um, ceilings. And, and so everything about our theology in the church is built on eternal relationships. Um, and um, that's the way it was with Rochelle and I. I. I know it's the way it is with you and Sheila. Right. Um, and um, I know um, how devastating it would have been for me to have, you know, Rochelle come to me and say, Dave, I, I just don't believe anymore. And, and then I would know that my vision, uh, I have to change it, you know, that, that, um, you know, she wouldn't be there if when we have children married in the temple, she might not be there in the eternities. Um, and, and so my worldview, my view of my family, um, in such a circumstance would be, uh, initially shattered. Um, we wouldn't go on missions together. We, you know, that everything would would change with regards to that vision that in 1980 Rochelle and I felt in the temple. I, I've interviewed a, a number of couples um, um, who are now mixed faith. I, I don't know if that's quite the right way to describe them, but um, you know they started out in the temple, um, and even though they're different and their beliefs were probably slightly different than Rochelle and I. Um, you know, they had that vision, um, and now they don't. So the believing spouse through all of this um, uh, experiences kind of a marriage trauma. Um, you know, do I know who they are? Do I know who my wife or my husband really is? Um, likely, if they've been having a faith crisis, um, as is typical, um, they haven't um, revealed that at least initially to their spouse. So they, they might've been questioning. They might've been wondering, they, they may have even spent time, um, you know, trying to figure out what they believe. Um, and, uh, so it may come as a shock to the believing spouse that, um, uh, their husband or wife, um, is in a faith crisis and maybe doesn't believe and maybe won't uh, continue to participate in church. Um, and they will feel that and process that as a betrayal. Usually it will be a trauma. Um, it will have elements of traumatic impact on them. It will represent pain and loss. And sometimes it will feel almost like an infidelity where they have betrayed their faith or they have betrayed their marriage. And I think those are kind of the natural knee-jerk reactions that many believing members um, will have when their spouse comes to them and say, hey, honey, I, I, I don't believe anymore. Um, and and they, they may wonder whether their marriage can continue, and some don't. But, so that, 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 I think those are the initial feelings that that believing spouse will feel. That's well said. I love, I mean, I, I think 
the stories I've heard, and you've heard a lot more than me, those are some of the vocabulary that people, the believing spouse uses. Talk about the spouse. What's the best way? Just lost faith. This is still a really good person that feels differently now. Talk about how they feel. So um, the person in a faith crisis has um, also a set of traumas. So um, surprisingly for many people who are believing members of the church, going through a faith crisis can be a trauma. It can be that whole worldview that they have had about the church, they no longer hold. And because of that, they um, wonder about their place in the universe and their family. Um, uh, and so they feel traumatic because of a loss of faith. Um, and it, it plays itself out in anger, plays itself out in pain. Um, and then as they um, confide in their spouse, they also have the trauma of what happens in their marriage. And they may also wonder whether that believing spouse will stay with them, um, will divorce them, will um, belittle them, uh, think that they are unfaithful or unworthy. Um, and because simply they don't no longer believe in the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, whether they will see any good in them um, after uh, their belief um, um, crumbles because of their faith crisis. So you're dealing with trauma meeting trauma, but it's not the same trauma. It's a different trauma. Um, and so it hurts. It hurts really, really badly to both. Well, that's really well framed up, David. Thank you. Um, your chapter 11 gets into sort of principles that can keep the marriage together. Um, and the initial goal might get to be get the unbelieving spouse back believing again, and that may happen in some situations. But I think your chapter is more creating a sustainable framework going forward in the marriage um, with both with the two spouses sort of in different places. Yeah. So, um, you know, marriage is, um, I, I think the, the family proclamation says it well. Um, they are equal partners in their marriage. Spouses are equal partners. And um, that means that um, there is an element of balance of power between them where, where they respect the other person enough that they don't make unilateral decisions. Um, they trust each other enough that they don't try and force or manipulate the other person into a set of behaviors um, that they uh, are patient and listening and um, compromising with each other and their differences. Um, for the believing spouse, it means that they have to, in some ways, this is really hard for them, at least initially, is they have to honor that other spouse's decision to leave the church. Um, and they have to respect that that spouse has the agency, um, the experience, um, their self-understanding that allows them to make that choice. Um, and um, to not try and proselytize and manipulate them back into the church. 
Likewise, for the departing spouse, it means that they respect the believing spouse and try to not manipulate them or pull them um, out of the church. And that's hard for both of them because they both have now strong beliefs that are different. Um, And because of that, they want to share those beliefs and want to convince the other about that. And marriages that work here are marriages where they honor those differences. They may not celebrate them, but they honor the difference and respect that the other partner has a right and agency and belief and integrity and the beliefs that they have. Um, Have you seen some marriages ultimately be stronger because there's tools that never existed in the marriage that are sort of coming to the marriage through therapy or through the work you're doing or others that give tool communication tools that actually, even though it's really painful, um, actually put the marriage in a better place, if that's the right vocabulary, because of the tools that the whole process brought into the marriage. Yeah. You know, writing this chapter was hard um, because it's all about the pain of kind of mixed faithness, whether it's in a marriage or whether it's parents and children. And um, as I wrote the chapter, I found some real hope in it. And the real hope is that um, uh, family members who go through this, um, if and and I think if they go through it um, right, um, they will develop um, a set of skills um, that do strengthen um, their relationship with each other because they they learn how to respect each other, they learn how to live in difference, they learn ways to find common ground where they didn't need it before, um, uh, and. Um, a number of couples that I have talked with says, say that their marriage has never been better um, because they've had to do that. Um, and those marriages, the work that they did was hard work. It wasn't that they simply became that, but they put in the work and learned the lessons and developed the skills that allowed them to do that. And I was amazed at some of the creativity that um, these couples came up with to um, find that common ground and to respect each other. I love that. I love anything that creates hope. And um, I would guess most of these marriages, when this verse is discussed, there's still the common ground that they want to keep the marriage together. Um, And I think that's a good thing to go, even though there's great differences in trauma meeting trauma. I like the, you talked about having different type of trauma meeting trauma. Um, the loss of a child in a sudden accident would be trauma, but it's sort of this shared trauma together. But this is different type of trauma meeting trauma. But I think if, if you can step back and say, we both have the goal to keep the marriage and the family together, um, give listeners an idea if someone's listening and they, this just happened in their marriage, and they want to get to this place you're describing, and I guess it's different in every situation. Is this a month, five years? Do you want to give any thoughts on that? Well, um, you know, trauma takes time to get over. So um, 
I think you have to be patient on this. I, I think you have to, in some ways, um, uh, be flexible because you don't exactly know where this is going to go. Um, so I, I interviewed one couple and um, uh, the husband in this case is the person who's left the church. And um, he said uh, initially, um, you know, don't worry, I, I'm not going to leave the church. I just don't believe anymore. So I'll still attend and the like. And um, so they kind of went to the next stage of their relationship, believing that that's the case. And then, you know, he comes and he says, I, I can't do that. I can't stay. And so there's in any marriage, there's always going to be changes at different stages in life. As someone, um, and I think the, the right word to use here, deconstructs their faith and reconstructs a new set of beliefs that each step along the way will, um, may require uh, additional flexibility and change inside the family. Um, and families that are more flexible and less rigid on on those aspects will move through that smoother and faster than marriages that are very rigid and it's very difficult to communicate and there's inflexibility between both partners. For some couples, it can take, um, um, I, don't, I don't know, months or maybe a year or so for there to kind of become a new equilibrium, but maybe it takes that long. And for others, it may take you know, multiple years to develop that um, and to kind of move past it and not worry so much about the mixed faith orientation and just worry about kind of the normal ways in which marriages have to adapt through and communicate through, you know, the needs of the family. So, um, but it's not weeks, you know, it's not three weeks and we got this figured out, you know, it's, Maybe someone's done it in three weeks, but, you know, it, it generally takes much longer than that. Talk about um, <clears throat> the believing spouse or the believing parent that has people that no longer hold beliefs. Sometimes those people will want to influence children in the home or the other spouse and say, this is what I've learned. You need to read all this stuff. You need to go to these podcasts. It is sort of an effort not just to help them understand what's happened, but perhaps to help them understand that what they believe is not right and draw them in a prescriptive way to their spot. And that can be hard on the believing spouse, especially if there's, especially for children um, that are still in the home. And I think you get into sort of the, how do you handle children in a mixed faith marriage? Yeah. So um, the marriage research that I read says that there are um, successful marriages, whether it's, you know, one that is aligned faith or mixed faith, there's characteristics of what make them work. Um, and one is that the spouse trusts it, the other spouse. Um, one is that the spouse is loyal to the other spouse. One is, um, that there is a balance of power between the spouses. Um, and 
then the other is that there is a preponderance of positivity in interactions, uh, even in conflict between the spouses, as opposed to negativity. And if you can deal with those four, four things, trust, loyalty, balance of power, positivity, then um, marriages tend to really be quite successful. So when we talk about um, what happens with children in mixed faith marriages, um, what it means is that they're, um, the, the spouses have to come up with common ways in which they can teach um, the values that they want taught to their children. Um, and um, there's one couple I know. Um, one Sunday, they go to um, our church, and which is um, the wife's church. And the next Sunday, they go to the Episcopalian church, which is the husband's church. Uh, and they participate at both churches, and they learn different things. And um, the children um, are taught by the parents that mom believes this, dad believes this. Um, you'll have to decide. You'll have to choose. And there isn't any other way that I know that families can go through the teaching of their children except by honoring the beliefs of both the, the active Latter-day Saint parent and the, um, the parent that is not an active Latter-day Saint parent. Um, and, and they need to honor um, those differences, and they need to come to understanding on that. Um, in, in the book, I point to some ways that values can be taught to the children that are not overtly um, LDS, but still um, are the values that uh, most even non-believing um, spouses would want taught to their children. It's almost a, a come follow me that could be um, uh, uh, plopped into a mixed faith family and works really well. Uh, I've interviewed couples who use those kinds of programs. It allows them to have a common language around spiritual things and allows them to be able to raise their children um, in a way where those values and practices um, um, are taught. Um, but there's compromise on that, which means that some of the children um, will be exposed to different beliefs um, earlier than they would have if the parents weren't mixed faith. It's a good, really good segment, Dave. And I love where you sort of take, let's find common values. Um, let's find this common ground. I'm reflecting on my own marriage, and I've talked about this a little bit at times. I'm in a mixed political marriage, which is not nearly as traumatic as being in a mixed faith marriage. and. We were in that, we've been in that marriage for all our marriage, and we've been open with our kids about that. And, and we have never been sort of trying to pull kids our direction. We don't try to keep score on where the kids are politically, and we've tried to honor each other's political beliefs. And that is a kind of a soft example because we have the same faith, and it's, you know, on a one to 10 scale, this is about a two. And People that are going through what you're describing is much higher up the scale, so I don't want to don't want to compare those too much. But the same principles apply, and we've just honored each other's space and have never tried to pull each other to our direction. Talk about um, 
there's doc talk to believing parents that um or the believing spouse that what doctrine do you point them to to give them hope that their dreams aren't crushed for their vision of their eternal family and that this sort of sad heaven empty chairs and um, any thoughts on doctrine that just gives them peace as loved ones that they deeply care about have chosen a different path? Yeah, so um, I, um, you know, our, our doctrine is clear that, um, that only families that make and keep sacred covenants can be together for eternity. You know, that's what the doctrine says, right? And um, uh, let me, do you mind if I just read Please. like a section um, from this chapter? Because um, th- this belief creates um, um, both great fear for parents and for believing spouse um, and also great pain. Um, I, I interviewed a mother that said, um, when my son left the church, it would have been easier for me if he had died because then I know I would have a chance of seeing him in heaven. Um, Whereas if he left the church, since he left the church, I don't have that hope. And, oh man, you know, it just makes you cry, right? You just feel her pain that, um, that um, she's, you know, lost this eternal relationship. Um, But, but here's what I write. Um, God does not fear. His entire work and glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of humankind. Alma calls it the great plan of happiness, not some sad heaven where we mourn who is not there. Although our eyes and hearts may be centered on the pain and situation of today, our faith can be greater. Our heavenly parents' plan is not just for a small, select fraction of the hundreds of billions of their individually distinct children. It's a perfect plan with all the time, opportunity, and hope that perfect plans have. Yes, there is a path back which we all must take, but it's not arbitrary. It's not paved with all, but it is paved with all the perfect love and patience of perfected heavenly parents. We need not let the fear and pain rob us of the love and hope of that plan. I question whether there are any limits to that plan beyond their respect for our freedom to choose. I cannot see that there comes a time when God grows impatient and withdraws the invitation to come unto him. We know little of the timeline of eternity, including at what point there might no longer be individual choice to change. So that's kind of where my heart goes on this is, you know, if God's not afraid, if he's not sad, why am I sad? Why am I afraid? I love that. That's really healing and hopeful. Um, talk just sometimes I just turn over to my guests to make sure that, that they share everything that I haven't talked about. So just talk about stuff you want to talk about. <laughs> so one of the other things that I've done, um, and you can include this in your show notes too, is I felt like when I wrote Bridges, you know, you know, a lot of leaders reached out to me and said, you know, do you want to do a fireside? Do you want to come train my leaders? We're using this for Ward Conference. And that's all wonderful. I um, did a little bit of that, not too much. But um, 
I wrote a leader's guide, um, and it's a eight page um, guide um, that. Uh, again, you can include it into your show notes. It's downloadable. It's free. But what it does is it takes the basic questions and concerns that people have and creates questions that a ward council or state council or a presidency could ask that would help them better either understand the issue or um, ask inspiration of either the participants or the Lord to um, be able to better minister to those um, who have those concerns. Um, and I, I think that guide could be kind of like a starter guide if a, a ward or a release society or a stake wanted to kind of approach some of these issues, um, you know, as a part of their uh, leadership and set apart uh, roles. So I, I felt like that was something that was important. Um, the other area that I've thought a lot about, um, and I know you and I have talked about it and you've even touched on it, is that um, whether it is issues of faith and belief and having mixed faith marriages or mixed political, mixed political marriages, we live in a world of divide. We, we live um, where... Um, it is very difficult for us to talk about the important things, whether it's faith or what we want in our community, how we want to approach certain issues that we consider political. And we barely um, are able to have dialogue on this. Um, we often just kind of retreat to our own echo chambers um, and um, uh, vilify uh, people who think differently than we do. We do that in the church sometimes. You know, people who leave, we we put labels on them and call them apostates or, you know, the fallen or, um, you know, um, wicked people. Um, and so we put labels on people and create villains and um, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. And if we're of this political party, they're the others are you know, the bad guys, they're evil, they're whatever, you know, put a label on it. And um, I think we, the, you know, the principles of bridges have kind of allowed me to think about society as a whole um, and realize that I, I need to listen to people that are different than me in society as a whole. Uh, and I, I need to understand why they think that way. Um, I, I need to be able to respect um, that people have differences. I, I need to be able to be in the room with them and have them express their views without um, thinking the worst of them if they are different than than mine. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about um, how these principles um, that uh, I think are so important in our mixed faith world also apply um, in our world as a whole. Um, and so that, so I've, I've thought a lot about that. I think that's a really important area, and it's one that I'm trying to explore right now. Talk about circles. So um, there's um, a couple of guys in Seattle, uh, and they've been, they wrote a book called How to Navigate the Difference Divide. 
And one way in which they did it is they're trying to do it is they're creating circles where they can take a particular question that where there will be obvious differences of belief and opinion. Um, and they can create a structure around that so that people can express uh, what they think about that question or topic. And people can be curious and ask them questions. And other people can respond with different, uh, different opinions. And then they can be asked about their beliefs and asked to clarify uh, whatever um, their response was. And in that process, um, they gain um, understanding of other people. They learn and model how to ask questions, how to be curious, how to be respectful, how to stay in the room when there's difference, how to not compare my best with your worst. Um, and in the process, um, they learn skills that allows them to be able to avoid contention, not, not avoid difficult topics. Avoiding contention doesn't mean we avoid difficult topics. Sometimes we think that that's what that means. But what it means is that we take the important topics, which are often very divisive, and we deal with them in a way that creates understanding. Um, and so they created this uh, format. They call them circles. And uh, they're usually an hour to an hour and a half long. Um, they have maybe 30 to 50 people or even 10 people that join. And they have a structured way of doing this. And um, I've now done about 20 of them um, in Latter-day Saint communities. Um, they're on Zoom, so they're not in physical communities. They're in virtual communities. And we've talked about a range of issues. And in that process, I found that um, um, they're always meaningful. Um, participants almost always come from it having learned something about another and having learned how to model the skill of listening and being curious. Um, I love what you're doing with circles. If I go to your website, bridgeslds.com, will I learn more about circles and yeah. could I potentially be a part of your circle, a future so, circle? So, um, you know, when we're recording this, which isn't when this will be available but I'll, I'll just tell you some of the circles that we have out there right now. Um, one is, this is how we can support LGBTQ youth in our wards. Um, and, and that's a, a circle that primarily would be believing members and leaders in a ward to talk about, you know, a, a, a very important topic. Uh, we have one called Here's What I'm Feeling. And this is a circle for parents whose adult children have left the church. Um, we have one called Who Should Be Directing the Teacher Teachings of Race and Gender in School. That's an overtly political one. That's a very divisive topic right now. Sometimes it's referred to as critical race theory. There's legislation. There's lots of division here. Um, what is unrighteous dominion and how do I know when I see it? This is what I wish my family understood about me. Um, do we need to have um, a reckoning in order to have racial reconciliation? So these are just some of the topics um, that we have uh, that that are, you know, will be happening um, as we record this over the next couple of weeks. And we just add topics that people are interested in 
uh, publicize them. We generally have, again, between 20 and 50 people that join. Um, and, um, uh, you know, we have good conversations. Yeah, I've right. trained about, um, I've sponsored training of about 12 people who can facilitate, we call it refereeing. Uh, so I have about 12 referees that um, uh, can operate the structure of a circle such that these principles are taught. Um, they come from wide and diverse kind of backgrounds, each with kind of different sets of starting points. But they all really um, are committed to creating ways in which we can listen um, and learn about people. I mean, it's it's the name of your podcast, uh, Dick. You know, it's listen, learn, and maybe in politics, it's not love, but, you know, it's often love. I love what you're doing, and I love that if I attended a circle and I haven't yet, I would learn principles there that I can then take into all the circles I'm it's scalable. The skills I learned there can be scalable to all these different areas. Um, our, our, our own parents, listeners that are 91 and 89, um, were involved in a circle, I think, moderated by your daughter and happened to have dinner because I live in Salt Lake with our parents and they loved it. And they loved just how it, everybody had a chance to talk. And I love the word you use, curious, that you're curious about somebody that holds a different belief than you and how that can be part of healing our divide. I've always felt listeners that creating Zion is not sameness. Um, creating Zion is about finding this common ground unity. And I look at some of these marriages you've described where one is in the faith and one isn't, but they have these wonderful, healthy marriages. In some ways that's Zion. Um, it's a different Zion than they thought when they were married in the temple. Um, but they've been able, to me, it's a tremendous success story that they've been able to use principles um, to create Zion and this unity and, and differences and, and how maybe helpful that is for their children growing up to even though that's not what they hoped when they got married, it's the reality of their marriage that they may see some paydays down the road in their own children's lives where they just have better tools to navigate the differences in the world and are great peacemakers and have tools to heal our divide. Um, we'll link. So I encourage listeners to check out one of these circles because um, I think they're really, I think it's a wonderful thing. Share more thoughts. We've got like 10 more minutes. If you've got other things you'd like to share. So Talk one about, of my favorite circles. Go ahead. Can I tell you one of my favorite circles? Yes. Um, it was one I did about uh, 10 days ago. And um, my wife and I were visiting um, Rochelle's parents in Idaho, and um, uh, they're living with uh, Rochelle's oldest brother. And um, um, one night, um, Rochelle's father wanted to have a discussion, a political discussion. Um, and I, I knew it probably wouldn't be a political discussion, and it would just you know, devolve into preaching and re-preaching and, you know, the like, and wouldn't be productive. And so um, we suggested that since they had heard we were doing things like circles, that we do a circle. And so we did a circle and um, there's a structure and I won't go into the structure, but um, uh, it was amazing. There were just six of us. So it wasn't like a big group. 
but we explained the rules and the way in which we were going to do it. And uh, Rochelle acted as the referee and um, we did the circle and it turned out to be really beautiful. And we didn't agree on the topics that we talked about, but no one left with any sort of bad feelings. And, and maybe even better than that, we all left with good feelings towards each other. Um, and I think everyone was able to express themselves. It wasn't though that we said, okay, we're going to pretend to talk about it, but not really talk about what we really thought. We really talked about what we thought. And, um, and we were, you know, people who disagreed with me, I felt closer to at the end. I hope they did with me too. I think they did. That's what they said. Um, but I can't read their hearts, but in my heart, I felt closer. Uh, I respected them more. And, um, it, it, it would have been a very different kind of experience had we not done that. So um, it, it's funny is I'm still struggle sometimes. Um, you know, so many times I, I don't really listen with curiosity to what people are saying. I really listen to rebut them. I, I listen to formulate my response. I, I listen um, you know, trying to come up with the data that will convince them that they're wrong. And um, I, I just learned that, number one, that's not effective. Number two, I'm not as right as I think I am. And number three, if I'm curious, I actually learn stuff and almost always leave with an insight or at least respect for someone's belief because I'm curious and try and get to know really why they believe the way they do. You know, people are smart people. They, they don't come to well-held beliefs um, simply um, through simple processes. They, they're, they're thoughtful and come to those beliefs uh, in particular ways. And, and um, uh, it, we, we need to respect that. I love that. Um, I think we, I mean, a political party is sort of a group unified with the same political platform. And, but the reality of a church, if we're creating Zion, it's not meant to be, we've got to find common ground because we're going to always have different political views within the umbrella of the gospel and with the umbrella of our families. And often we don't know these skills to, to bring the sort of wonderful experiences you had with your wife's parents. And, you know, these are people in their late eighties and nineties that are having these experiences. And I think our assumptions would be that maybe that's a harder group to sort of have these conversations with, but I think we can learn that people, if they can have kind of a model and be curious, um, it can be a positive experience. And our goal is not you are pretty honest and vulnerable. And I felt a lot of the same feelings as I've aged up is I've wanted to do better and not just always rebut. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from um, one of my favorite Institute teachers. In some matters, it's better to be intellectually uncertain rather than superficially sure. This will leave us a great deal to be certain about by maintaining a humility to learn. And I love this quote from Elder Uchtdorf. How often has the Holy Spirit tried to tell us something we needed to know but couldn't get past the massive iron gate of what we thought we already knew. So that comes back to this word you've used throughout the podcast, curious. And I think of the prophet Joseph Smith. 
he was pretty curious. Um, he was in a family religion. Um, he could have been fine in his family religion. I think they were choosing a couple of them, some members of the family, but really curious. And he started to ask questions. And that led to the restoration. And so I think that's part of um, the culture that needs to be go forward in the church and exists. I don't want to say it doesn't exist, but I think it's a healthy thing. And I think people need these tools. And I'm wondering if elders quorums would ever do a circle or a state council or ward council and just model this and say, I want my quorum or my release society to have this sort of safety where, you know, we just don't, we can be safe so that people can share their feelings and we have um, skills. Often um, in class, it's just kind of these one-off comments we never build on. And it's just the next person giving their comment and the teacher kind of being pressed to get through the lesson. And I've wondered if it's sometimes better to stop and build off of someone's question and not finish the lesson. And, and um, perhaps we can use some of the principles from circles to do that or even have a whole Sunday school release study elders form lesson that there is no lesson. It's just these principles and say, this is the kind of culture we want to have in our release society or elders form in our ward. We could do this in a fifth Sunday um, just to improve the culture within our ward as a ward leader saying, this is what we want to value in our ward. So there's a lot of things. And I, I think we both encourage listeners to just act on the impressions you feel in your circle of influence um, with the things that Dave has been sharing. More thoughts you'd like to share? We've got about five more minutes. There's um, a quote by a Christian pastor named David Osberger that um, I include in this chapter. Um, it's about listening. It's being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. And um, wow, I mean, that's just a I, wow I, quote. It, it's just beautiful. And um, I've tried to read some of his other stuff. I, this might be the only thing he said that is, you know, truly immortal, um, you know, for, you know, that will be repeated forever and ever. But it's beautiful. Um, listening is such a powerful and important um, aspect of human relationship. Um, and everything that goes on behind that, the respect, the curiosity, the interest, um, all get to the connection that we as individuals need. Um, I need it. Um, uh, um, you know, we all need it. And um, it. it it's probably at the heart of um, the divides and the disconnection that we feel in society. So um, to me, um, my whole book, kind of my whole kind of frame of, of thought comes back to that conversation that you and I had maybe five years ago where it was, you know, go ask them. Um, I don't know if you said, and listen, that's what you meant was, you know, go ask them why. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that, that is, I think, at the heart of, uh, of our human relationships. And listeners, that probably comes from my marketing research background, is we would do a lot of studies 
with customer bases. We used to call them lapsed or lost customers. I don't want to imply that people have left our church or lost, but then we would go find them and do a lot of research to understand what happened. Is when we know better, we do better. And so I think it makes sense and discuss that research. It just helps us understand. Um, I've learned to try not to form opinions about group of people without talking to lots of people in that group. It's better to have no opinions than sort of unearned opinions. Talk about the Facebook group that you and Geralee put together. We'll put that in the show notes, but you've put together a Facebook group. Um, introduce that to our listeners if they're not aware of that. So it's a Facebook group for parents whose adult children have, um, you know, left the church. I, I don't like that term, but you know what I mean by it. Um, and it's primarily for parents to have a place to go where they can mourn and process and ideate or, or just not feel alone. Um, um, it's, it's not a great place of understanding, but it's a great place of, of community. Um, um, some parents um, have, have, are, are just dealing with their loss as they feel it. Um, they're wondering whether they can have relationship with their kids. They wonder what it means about eternal future. Um, and so um, that's a group that we um, operate. It um, has maybe 1,200 members or so. Um, and there's just a whole lot of pain in that group. You know, just people are sad when they're... Um, they have empty chairs in the temple. And um, so we, we operate that, and um, it, it's a good, healthy discussion. We moderate it carefully so it's not argumentative or negative towards the church. Um, but it, it has still a wide range of beliefs of people that um, all have a common experience. I love the community that's there and um, the safe place for parents to sort of process this. So um, we'll put a link to that in the show notes too. Um, we'll just turn it to you, Dave, for any final thoughts. Well, I don't know if I have any final thoughts, <laughs> but um, I sure appreciate uh, your podcast. And um, um, I sometimes get um, called Papa Osler because I <laughs> enter this space just a little bit. and. Um, you know, you're, you're, I'm, I'm proud to, to have the Osler name for a number of reasons, but one is um, uh, there's a halo effect from the good work that you do. And so I, I appreciate that. And this isn't a love and a praise fest for each other, but um, you know, nonetheless, I'm, I'm grateful. You're my brother. I'm grateful for the work you do and I'm grateful for the many lives um, you touch. Thank you, Dave. And Feelings mutual. It's interesting, listeners. We kind of both stepped into our respective spaces for a period of time, a little unsure to talk to each other. We, I think I didn't tell you I was kind of getting involved in this space, and you were kind of getting involved in your space, and you don't quite know how your family members might respond to that. And so then we realized we're both sort of on journeys to understand um, issues within our church and talk about it. And it was kind of interesting that we both started this about the same time and, um, you know, I've been doing it ever since. 
Uh, please check out, I mean, the best place if you're going to start, just so you have the website, bridgesLDS.com. That's going to be the best place for to go for what we've talked about. And then we'll put anything else. That's where you can download Dave's chapter. That's where you can learn about circles. That's where you can see where Dave's book's being sold. The book that has 10 chapters, soon to be 11 chapters. It's at Amazon and Desert Book if you just want to go directly to there. And so that's really the best place to start. And I think we both just invite you to act on the impressions you felt. This is a podcast to bring us together, to create Zion, to bring healing and hope. Um, so Dave, you're doing really needed work and thank you for your efforts. And Dave and I and our wives might be on a vacation in the next, um, four weeks or so. So we're looking forward to that and some time to spend together. So listeners, thank you for all you do. And, um, please rate this podcast. You can't donate it. We don't have sponsors, but the thing you can do is go to iTunes and give us a review and continue to share this as you may know about minimum about 12,000 people listen to every episode. So all you listeners have done just a terrific job of sharing these podcasts and connecting more to these stories. So this is Richard Osser and his slightly older brother that has probably less gray hair than I do by a little bit. Um, (laughs) We could joke about that. I have more hair. You have more hair. There you go. I'd keep it real short. Um, But anyway, we'll sign off here from another episode. (laughs) Mumbling now. Another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.